Hi, this is Rachel on Recovery. We've got a special guest, Victor B, and he's going to tell us a little bit about himself, and then we're going to rush into some questions about him. Thanks, Rachel. Good to be uh, with you. Uh, I am Chief Program Officer for Education Research at Zero Abuse Project. We're a non-profit organization. We provide training, technical assistance, publications to child abuse prosecutors and investigators. So we also work with universities to improve undergraduate and graduate training. We engage in a wide variety of prevention initiatives. Uh, we publish, we do research, and perhaps pertinent to in part our conversation today, we do a lot um, of work on the intersection uh, between religion and uh, child abuse. So we try to improve both the faith and secular community's response to the spiritual impact of trauma. Okay. Um, tell us, how did you get into this type of work? Yeah, I didn't plan on it in law school. Uh, back then I was thinking of maybe going into public policy or perhaps being a public defender. But uh, after I graduated from law school, I got a job in a county attorney's office. They signed me to a termination of parental rights case. And there was a poignant moment in the trial where uh, one of our social workers was uh, cross-examined by the defense attorney about all the things that he did wrong. And he, he got emotional and said, well, you know, I I came in, I saw the baby on the floor, not in great condition, and the child was covered with maggots, and I, I just didn't know what to do. I scooped up the infant and took the child to a medical provider, and I was so impacted by that emotionally. I, I thought, wow, I, I think this is what I want to do with my my life. I want to uh, work in the field of, of uh, child protection, and I really want to improve the skills of all of us who respond to trauma, because quite frankly, none of us in that uh, trial uh, uh, were properly educated our undergraduate or graduate uh, programs to respond to these issues, and that contributes to a lot of mishandling of cases uh, in the field. So I gave my life to child protection. I served as a prosecutor child protection attorney for a decade, and then I ended up in the national level. And so now I've been been in the field for going on 36 years. That's awesome. Um, tell us a little bit about um, Project uh, Zero Abuse Project. Yeah, we um, operate under a number of federal and state uh, grants. And so uh, we uh, uh, provide training, technical assistance, publications to child abuse prosecutors and investigators. So we, we train several thousand a year. We consult on cases and we do publications to advance uh, the field. Uh, we oversee uh, an initiative called Child First that helps train professionals how to interview children who uh, are making an outcry of child sexual abuse. Uh, we work uh, under uh, a program called CAST, Child Advocacy Studies, to improve undergraduate and graduate uh, training. I think we're uh, over 90 uh, universities that have implemented that uh, particular reform. And then uh, we have a number of initiatives to try to uh, improve the response of faith leaders to child abuse. So we have a program called Keeping Faith, where we bring faith and secular communities into the same room and teach them how to work together. We work with seminaries to improve uh, education, uh, to better prepare clergy to respond to the spiritual impact of, of trauma. Um, and then, you know, really whatever the field needs, we try to uh, adapt and grow uh, resources. So we're increasingly doing a lot on technology-facilitated crimes against uh, children and uh, helping the, the, the field respond to that 
particular dynamic as well. Okay. Um, all right. What does the research tell us about the about the the effects of physical and emotional impact of trauma? Yeah. Um, maybe the best study to, to, to help folks get a handle on that. Um, it began at Kaiser Permanente in 1998. A doctor named Vincent Folletti was overseeing a major weight loss control program, and he noticed something in the program that was shocking. He noticed the men and women doing the best at losing weight were also the quickest to drop out of the program and rapidly regain their weight. In fact, they would regain their weight at a level he previously thought was physiologically impossible. So he just didn't know what to make of that finding. He began to study the backgrounds of these patients, and what he learned is all of them had endured significant childhood trauma, and unconsciously and in some instances consciously they were overeating as compensation. Yeah, I know it's not good to overeat, Dr. Fletty. It creates health risks, but it's also soothing. It's also comforting. It takes my mind off my pain, gets me through the day, gets me through the week, gets me through the month, gets me through the year, gets me through my life. And now you, Dr. Fletty, are taking away my only coping mechanism. And so I had to drop out of your program and rapidly regain my weight. He was so intrigued by that finding, he said, gosh, if there's a statistical correlation between child abuse and obesity, what else is there a correlation with? So he queried 17,000 men and women participating in an HMO in San Diego, California, and he asked them if they had endured uh, adversities in uh, any of 10 categories. So were you physically abused as a child? Were you sexually abused as a child? Were you emotionally abused? Were you emotionally neglected? Did you witness domestic violence? Did you have a member of the family hospitalized for a psychiatric condition? And Is so on and so board? forth. He then... Yeah, absolutely. It is the uh, A score. Um, and then uh, he calculated the, the A score. So if you fit into one category, such as physical abuse, you had an A score of one. If you were in a second category, such as sexual abuse, you had an A score of two, and so on and so uh, forth. And then he measured the impact on your physical and emotional health. And he found that if you had an A score of even just one, and it didn't matter which of the 10 categories you fit into, throughout your life, you were more likely to suffer from hundreds of medical and mental health conditions, including things we would never think of being correlated with child abuse, such as cancer. Now, why might cancer have a correlation to child abuse? A couple of reasons. One is if you have a high A score, you're more likely to smoke or engage in other behaviors that increase your risk of cancer. But even if we isolate isolate contributory behaviors from the research, enduring trauma changes the development of your brain. It weakens your immune system. Rachel, every day, all of us are uh, probably developing cancer cells, but for most of us on most days, our immune system is killing them. Well, if you have a high A score, your immune system is weakened and you're more susceptible to cancer and other diseases. In terms of mental health conditions, you're more likely to uh, be diagnosed with something like depression, 54% of women, 36% of men diagnosed with depression have very high uh, A scores, more likely to be diagnosed with uh, anxiety uh, or any number of other mental health uh, conditions. So Enduring trauma has a significant, uh, uh, plays a significant role uh, in a wide variety of medical and mental health uh, issues. Unfortunately, our 
healthcare system often treats the symptoms. Oh, you've got anxiety, I got a pill for that. You've got uh, a sleeping disorder, I got a pill for that. We we treat the smoke, we ignore the underlying uh, conditions. I completely agree with that. Um, the only things I really find helpful are, you know, EMDR, neurofeedback, and like yoga and Tai Chi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a wide variety of evidence-based uh, responses to trauma. You mentioned EMDR and uh, that is one and cognitive behavioral therapy may be another. Uh, you mentioned yoga, uh, which is a good uh, pivot to addressing the spiritual impact of trauma, but mindfulness and uh, spiritual care can uh, be a significant buffer against a high uh, A score as well. Okay. Um, what are some of the impacts of spiritual abuse when intertwined with other types of abuse, such as physical, sexual, emotional? Yeah, there's a huge body of research on this uh, issue, and yet, uh, sadly, that research has been often ignored by both the secular and faith communities. But uh, we know uh, from a huge body of research that most, not all, but most uh, children who are uh, 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 experiencing trauma will be spiritually wounded as a result. Sometimes that happens because the offender incorporates a religious theme into the abuse of the child and convinces uh, the child that they are somehow complicit or uh, the primary uh, person to blame for their own uh, trauma. Uh, sometimes, though, uh, a child just has spiritual or religious questions. I pray and I pray and I pray and I ask God to stop the abuse, but the abuse keeps happening. So what does that say about God or me or or both. And left unresolved, these can create um, uh, deep uh, spiritual uh, wounds. And as the child uh, grows up, they're often angry uh, at God or uh, whoever uh, their understanding of a creator may be. They distance themselves from uh, organized uh, religion. But it doesn't mean they're no longer spiritual. It doesn't mean they have abandoned what Dr. Donald Walker calls the quest for the sacred or divine. Viktor Frankl said, it is not suffering that is unbearable. It is suffering without meaning. And so they're still searching to make uh, meaning out of their uh, suffering. Uh, they are, in Christian terms, the lost uh, sheep uh, that uh, both faith and secular communities have to learn to uh, reconnect with and, and aid them uh, in, in coping spiritually okay. with their trauma. Um, what is intergenerational trauma? Yeah. Um, Intergenerational uh, trauma uh, means you you are part of a community uh, that has uh, experienced trauma at a high level. So think of the revelations in the past year or so of uh, boarding uh, schools in indigenous uh, communities in Canada and the United States and the uncovering of bodies and how many children were literally uh, tortured in these uh, communities. Uh, in the United States, you think of our uh, history of slavery and segregation uh, and the like. Um, uh, and, and so it's impacting you generation after generation. Um, I, I have uh, one example I can I can give maybe that that highlights it. Uh, I have a dear friend in the Jewish uh, community, and um, um, for for a long time uh, uh, she gave me a, a gentile a name, and then uh, eventually after a year or so of friendship, she asked me if I I would use her her Hebrew name. And she went on to say that in her uh, community, everybody has both a Gentile and a Hebrew name. And uh, out there uh, with uh, uh, those who are not uh, Jewish, they use the 
a Gentile name out of fear that if God forbid the Holocaust returned, we got to be able to hide. We got to be able to hide our uh, Judaism and we uh, may uh, have uh, uh, money hidden in our uh, room so that if our bank accounts were seized uh, again, uh, that we could move uh, quickly. And, um, you know, as, as someone who's not Jewish, I can read about the Holocaust. I can watch the great PBS documentary that, that aired not long ago. I can learn. I can grow my knowledge. But it's still not impacting me in, in quite the same way. So even generations later, the old uh, stories of trauma are influencing in, in multiple ways. Um, another example of how you can be influenced by intergenerational trauma there is uh, epigenetic uh, studies to say that um, uh, this could be, you know, passed down from uh, generation to generation. There's a study on on, on animals who uh, uh, had certain uh, pain uh, mechanisms as a result of a certain uh, smell, and then they found three or four generations later, when that smell was there, they were still having a, a physical and an emotional reaction to a certain smell. Uh, so things can be passed down through our uh, DNA, uh, and they can be influencing us for multiple generations uh, later. And then connecting it uh, to the uh, ACE research studies have found that um, if you have a high ACE score, and you're also part of a community that has experienced uh, intergener intergenerational trauma, it can ex exacerbate, it can make uh, worse uh, your uh, response to uh, trauma. Um, I know there's the study about the kids that were born from World War II vets um, that were prisoners of war. And then they had kids, uh, one, they had a kid before and then they had a kid afterwards. And then uh, they noticed that the kids that were born after being prisoner of wars um, had a lot more health issues. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example of the sort of dynamic we need to be uh, aware of and begin to pivot and, and, and make progress in, okay. in addressing. What do you do to break the chains of intergenerational trauma? Yeah, um, let's maybe address it from both a secular and a faith uh, community. Um, as a... a in the faith community, we need to begin to talk about it. We need to um, have a good understanding of what systemic uh, racism is, uh, the potential for biases. Uh, all human beings have bias, and uh, to really be active in exploring our own uh, potential bias. So, um, uh, you know, Harvard has uh, uh, an online test everybody could take, the Harvard Implicit Association uh, test that could help you gauge what uh, potential biases you have. And once aware of those, how do we um, uh, how do we move in a in a in a better direction as well? Uh, be honest and open in in talking about these uh, issues. Silence often uh, reinforces uh, racism and intergenerational trauma. I would move from our remove from our vocabulary the concept of color blindness uh, because we need to see uh, color we need to see religion we need to see uh, uh, the diversity of our of our communities um, and um, uh, and then I I think we need to move away from the concept of cultural competence and move toward cultural humility recognizing that um, uh, we we 
have room to grow as we understand the um, uh, cultures that may be different from from our from our own. So those are some personal things that we can all uh, do to be aware of this. In the secular uh, community, if I'm working with somebody who has a ACE score and uh, 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 may also have experienced intergenerational trauma, I want to make sure I make a referral to a mental health provider or other professionals who are aware of both of these things and how they may um, uh, feed off of, of one another. In terms of the faith community, uh, Jamar uh, Tisby uh, wrote a really great book, The Color of Compromise, and he had a number of suggestions for uh, the faith uh, community. Uh, he suggested, and his book was focusing primarily on um, uh, how the United States treated the African-American community, uh, he said we should teach uh, black uh, history in seminaries and, and faith-based colleges. Uh, we should make sure people understand what systemic racism means and give them concrete examples such as uh, redlining and everything the federal government did to keep uh, uh, black uh, uh, families uh, from uh, housing and how that uh, uh, has influenced uh, a high rate of poverty to this uh, very day. We should have pilgrimages to uh, the National Civil Rights Museum, the Natural, National Lynching Memorial. Uh, um, uh, we should conduct Bible studies uh, on this uh, topic. Another great pilgrimage would be to the AME uh, Church in Charleston that uh, endured uh, a horrific uh, act of, of violence not long ago. Uh, Juneteenth should be celebrated in our churches. We should talk about uh, what that means. Uh, we should have a conversation about repar reparations as it's found in the Bible. So, you know, the account of Zacchaeus who wanted to give back uh, a whole lot more to the poor than what he had uh, taken from that. What would that mean in terms of uh, repairing uh, our relationships with communities that have been uh, wronged and held uh, back? Uh, in the Christian community, there's a lot we can learn from the Black Church. If folks haven't uh, watched the PBS documentary a couple years ago, uh, um, I would encourage them to do that. There's a companion book. Uh, there's a lot we can we can learn uh, from uh, other communities. So there's a handful of things that we can do individually and do in the secular community and uh, perhaps begin to talk about and move uh, in a better direction in the faith community as well. Most definitely. Um... What can churches do better with working with, with intergenerational trauma? You know, um, I, I forget who recommended it. Maybe it was Jamar Tisby. I mentioned him a moment ago, or maybe it was Esau Macaulay in his book, uh, Reading While Black. Uh, but um, uh, someone had suggested uh, really, uh, you know, simple, concrete things we can do to study our own church's history on this uh, issue. So uh, maybe walking around looking at your stain, stained glass windows. Is there uh, any diversity uh, there at uh, Christmas time? What is the image of Jesus? look like? Is it uh, uh, Caucasian with a blonde uh, hair that does not uh, reflect uh, accurately what Jesus uh, likely uh, looked uh, like? Um, uh, you know, why is your church located where it is in a particular community? Was it the generations uh, ago you wanted to distance yourself from uh, diverse uh, communities? Um, you know, in some parts of the country, faith communities were uh, 
uh, are, are working in uh, working and living in churches that slave labor uh, was used to construct, uh, and so on and so forth. So, just understanding your own history uh, would be a really good starting uh, point. And again, it could be as simple as walking around and beginning to look at the stained glass window and the other artifacts in your uh, in your particular uh, community. Can the child welfare system address intergenerational trauma? Yeah. Um, uh, 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 The United States Department of Human Services has done a couple of really good literature reviews. The most recent, I think, was published about a year ago, and they do a deep dive on the research on what causes uh, disproportionality in the child uh, welfare system. Uh, and some of it is systemic. I mentioned redlining before. And so we've locked certain groups uh, into uh, poverty and held them back and being uh, aware of that and, and public policy may uh, improve that. So one simple example, in 19 states, it's still lawful to uh, take a, a board or another object and inflict corporal punishment on children. And we know uh, from data that uh, uh, minorities uh, are much more likely to get paddled in school than anyone else. We know boys are more likely to get uh, paddled. We know that children with disabilities are more likely to get uh, paddled. So just ending uh, the policy, uh, state-sanctioned policy, of, of hitting children with boards in uh, 19 uh, schools uh, would be a, a, a step in the right uh, direction. Um, uh, and anything we can do to, to lift families out of poverty would be a good uh, public policy initiative as as well. Um, and then I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago the Harvard implicit bias uh, test. Uh, so take a measurement of that and assess your own biases and how it may influence you one way or the other when you're dealing with diverse uh, cultures. We need, we, we need to make sure that our multidisciplinary teams who respond to child abuse are as diverse as possible, have as many perspectives as possible. Because research says in responding to child abuse, if the evidence is overwhelming, there's no abuse, or if the evidence is overwhelming, there clearly is abuse, we're probably going to get it right. It's in the middle ground where reasonable minds may uh, differ and culture may come into play that uh, we may have disparate uh, responses. So in those particular cases, being as diverse as possible is really uh, critically important to have multiple uh, perspectives in play. And research says that will reduce uh, the potential for uh, a bias. Um, But those, I mean, those are a handful of of things, but it's, you know, it's really uh, complicated. Um, And then I would do, I I guess, one other thought. Um, I think it's really important to to be engaged in looking at data in each of our child welfare systems. So what is the demographics of my community? And can I see in the data we're collecting uh, that uh, we are over-representing or under-representing uh, particular groups? And then uh, if we are, to ask some some hard questions why we are. Uh, for prosecutors, you really have to pay attention to uh, the sentencing you're recommending and the sentencing judges are giving. And uh, are we harsher uh, with folks who commit the same crime who may be uh, a minority? Are there things like that um, that are going on that maybe we're just not paying attention to. I guess to put it all under one umbrella, we need to be proactive in, in growing our knowledge and assessing our systems and then uh, working as, as a community to, to address this uh, holistically. How can the church help with the child welfare system when addressing inter- 
intergenerational trauma. You know, I think there's a lot of things the faith community can can do. Um, um, you know, starting with breaking bread. Uh, uh, there are over 900 children's advocacy centers in this uh, night uh, in this nation, and they serve over 90 percent of the population. So, virtually every faith community has a CAC that serves uh, their uh, particular community. So, reaching out to the CACs, breaking bread, saying, "What services do you provide? What prevention initiatives could you uh, help us with? Would you be willing to review our child protection policies? Uh, do you provide any uh, education on uh, basic trauma?" research and intergenerational trauma. Uh, who do you recommend in terms of uh, evidence-based mental health providers, medical providers, and so on and so forth, so that we have a really good uh, reservoir of referrals that we can make uh, before uh, 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 the problem uh, arises in our uh, community. Uh, and then beyond that, there are promising practices such as uh, as a program called Halos that started in Charleston, South Carolina, here in Minnesota, we call it uh, Care in Action, where faith communities and uh, child protection communities partner. And if there is a child, say, in foster care who has a need, the government can't or won't provide, you reach out to the faith partners, uh, and then they figure out what they can do about it. So there was a girl in foster care who is asked out for prom. Well, she doesn't have any money for a prom dress. Uh, uh, it's not the sort of thing her foster care providers or the social worker could uh, give her. Uh, but the social worker explains it to the local faith partners, and then they just send out an email, not giving details, but saying we have a, uh, a child in foster care who has this need. Can anybody help? And in that particular instance, Somebody said, well, I own a dress shop. Uh, uh, it's on the house, so we can uh, help her get a prom dress. Oh, yeah, well, I uh, am manager of the best seafood restaurant in town. If she and her date like uh, lobster, we can uh, provide that. Oh, yeah, well, uh, I'm uh, owner of a limousine company. It's uh, on the house. I'll give him my best driver for the uh, evening. So just communicating these uh, needs, the faith community can often go beyond what it is that the child uh, needs. And then as you get engaged in situations like that, the knowledge of the faith community about uh, trauma is is going up uh, markedly. Uh, there's a lot of common sense, practical things like that that we can do to, to move the dial in a good way. Okay. Um, what is some of the best advice you could give somebody who's trying to break out of uh, generational trauma? Yeah. Be- being aware uh, of how you're impacted by trauma generally and intergenerational trauma uh, specifically is really uh, critical because if you're not aware how it's impacting uh, you, you may be at a loss of uh, of understanding your behaviors and your emotions and uh, how it may be impacting your interpretation of events. Uh, so just being aware of that is really critical. Mm-hmm. And then two, finding uh, appropriate resources to help you move in a in a better uh, direction. And you know we've given some suggestions there. But if, for example, you're reaching out to a medical or mental health provider, specifically ask them, what are your skills? What is your knowledge base on trauma generally and intergenerational trauma specifically? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really do some homework in, in advance. And again, CACs and the like are really good uh, information centers to, uh, to help you find appropriate, appropriate resources the Bible say about generational curses and many people today would think that would apply to intergenerational trauma. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the sacred texts have a lot to say about intergenerational trauma. So, um, you know, Jesus was born into a Jewish family. Uh, uh, he, he would have understood uh, generations of trauma under the uh, the Roman system and others who had oppressed the Jewish community. Um, and I think that shows up in some of his teachings, his understandings of, of the family and community he is growing up with. So Jesus, I would uh, argue, was uh, trauma-informed generally and uh, also understood the impact of intergenerational trauma trauma. Um, you know, there's the uh, passage from, uh, I believe it's uh, Moses, that, uh, you know, things may be passed down generation to uh, generation in a good or a bad way. Uh, and there's some lessons there that uh, convey a, an understanding of intergenerational trauma. I think we do have to break away that it's a curse from God. I don't think the sacred text supports that. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. That God uh, is deeply compassionate toward the vulnerable or the wounded. In the lineage of Jesus, for example, we're told he's the descendant of at least three sexually exploited women, Bathsheba, Tamar, and uh, Rahab. And so it's in the DNA of Christ uh, for uh, the Christian community uh, in the blood of God to uh, to understand things that have happened in the in the past can be influencing us uh, today, um, and um, you know to, to to really talk about it openly and how do we move in a uh, in a better in a better direction. Okay, um, how has this impacted your faith while working in this field? Yeah, um, it's a hard question. I, um, um, you know, faith is important to me, and and a healthy spirituality is a buffer. It's a source of resilience, and so, um, you know, when I'm worn out or fatigued or experiencing vicarious trauma, just that drip drip of consulting in cases of of child abuse, uh, prayer and uh, meditation and reading sacred texts can be uh, comforting uh, to me. Uh, on the other hand, um, since most uh, faith communities don't have child protection policies, those that do fall well below what I or other experts would recommend. They rarely talk about this from the pulpit. They rarely conduct a Bible study. Uh, very few faith communities would meet the SAMHSA standards for being uh, trauma-informed. And despite all the lawsuits, all the bad uh, press, we're still not uh, going in the direction that we need to. That can that can wear you down, and uh, you you begin to you know question your faith to these folks. Uh, really understand God, or maybe they do understand God uh, at some level, but the God that they've made is not the one that exists. Um, you know, it it can impact you. I remember when the news uh, out of France uh, was was uh, hitting the airwaves, and they did a study, and my memory's right, over three hundred thousand children sexually abused in the in the in the church in France. And I was just struck with the number 300,000. Uh, and how, how can this be? And I, I remember just getting really emotional and crying that day and walking around the block. And I remember getting really angry at God saying, you know, you picked the wrong person because obviously I'm not making a dent here. I'm not making an impact. Um, and, and so it can impact you, but then eventually you kind of come back and you, you know, you read uh, Job, and Job got pretty angry at God, and God was big enough to take it, and some of the Psalms and the uh, prophets get pretty upset with God. Uh, and then you try to make a distinction between 
God and the church, right? I, I believe my personal faith is that God is always on the side of the vulnerable and the suffering and sacred texts make that clear, even though the, the, the church, especially the hierarchy is, uh, has not yet often been on the side of the, uh, of the vulnerable. Um, you know, Elijah thought he was completely alone and God said, I've preserved a faithful remnant. So I look toward those handful of faith leaders who are really proactive and reaching out to experts and moving in a better direction. Those I think are the, the faithful remnant and I, I want to be, uh, uh, in their company. What do you do for self-care? I mentioned a couple, uh, prayer and uh, meditation and uh, reading sacred texts. But, uh, Rachel, I'm also a huge Johnny Cash fan, and music uh, can be comforting. And I just love the beat of Johnny Cash music. Sounds like a train. And um, the, the beat is really relaxing uh, to me, and his voice I find very uh, comforting because uh, it's, it's raw, it's on edge, and yet he talks about you know difficulties, and he experienced a lot of difficulties, and he uh, himself had endured uh, trauma in his, in his home. Uh, so music can be really uh, comforting. Exercise is good. I'm not a big exerciser, but I do love to walk, and so going for long walks is a really good thing. And then having those handful of trusted people you can turn to. So my wife uh, is a great partner to me, and I have a, uh, a handful of really close friends that I, I feel I can be vulnerable with when I'm, I'm struggling. So that's a really good thing. Um, the last thing I would mention on self-care, we at Zero Abuse, Zero Abuse actually have this really creative program where uh, periodically we, we get assigned a new buddy uh, in the organization. And so let's say you were my uh, wellness partner, um, uh, you and I would talk regularly and I would be proactive and saying, hey, what are you doing for self-care? And then holding you accountable that you're actually doing that. And you would do the same for uh, me and then periodically I'd get a new uh, a partner. And so uh, we're working uh, throughout the organization and really learning how to take care of, of one another. I think that's a really promising practice for the, the field and uh, that would be a good thing that uh, we should replicate. Okay. Is there anything else you would like to add that I haven't asked? Um, you know, for those who may have a high ACE score, don't don't feel that um, that this guarantees you have a bad outcome in in life. Look at it as a, look at it as empowering research to to understand how you may be impacted physically, emotionally, and spiritually, uh, and then look for how you uh, may address that with medical care, mental health care, spiritual uh, care. Um, also take a look at all the research on resilience. You know, a lot of people with IA score grow up uh, very well because they find a caring uh, person uh, in their life who can uh, help them. Uh, they begin to think differently about um, uh, uh, uh things in the Bible or elsewhere that have been used in a destructive way. Um, and, and so they just, they begin to build a, a, a reservoir of resilience and, and go in a better direction. Uh, the past is not always prologue. Uh, high score does not mean you're guaranteed to have a, a, a poor outcome, uh, but it is something to be aware of and to be proactive in, uh, in, in, in working to address. Okay. Thank you so much. Anything? Um, I think that's it. All right. Thank you, Rachel, for uh, talking about these sensitive subjects. Thanks for all you do. I'm grateful. Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Tune in uh, every Thursday at uh, 10 a.m. 
listen on your favorite podcast follow us on your favorite social media platform and always any questions reach out to rachelrecovery.com thank you